Oftentimes in human history, we can point to single decisions made by individuals or peoples that result in ramifications far exceeding the expectations of those making the decisions. Uh, January 10th, the morning of January 10th, A.D. 49, uh, Julius Caesar had a decision to make. He stood along the banks of the Rubicon River, which was actually a small stream that separated at the time what was, the, what was Italy proper from the provinces. Over the last few years, Caesar had become one of the two most powerful men in Rome, which also made him one of the two most powerful men in the world. To get him out of Rome for a while, the Roman Senate had given him the task of cleaning up Gaul, which is modern-day France, and he'd done that job with efficiency and also with a bit of brutality as well. His leadership was superb, demonstrating both military genius and superior administrative skills. And he was also ambitious, and that was the problem. The Roman Senate feared Caesar, and so did the other of the two most powerful men in the world at that time, a man named Pompey. The city is Pompey. The general was named Pompey. The Senate was a self-centered bunch who for years had passed legislation that benefited them personally with little thought to the long-term consequences to Rome and its citizens. Caesar had been making noises that those days were about to come to an end. After his successes in Gaul, the Senate had ordered Caesar to stand down and to disband his army. But Caesar refused, and instead he took the army and marched south toward Italy. He stopped at what was at the time the northernmost boundary of Italy, which was the Rubicon, the stream, because to go any further under Roman law would have been an act of war. No general could cross the Rubicon with his army. Now, the general could cross himself, and they often did, but the army had to stay behind. So Caesar had a decision to make. The Roman historian Suetonius reports that that cool, crisp January morning as Caesar walked out from his tent and stood along the banks of the Rubicon and pondered what he was to say, he said this, If I stay here, it'll be bad for me. If I cross this river, it's going to be bad for the Senate. The die is cast. And that was all the thought it took. And he took the, took the Roman army and crossed the Rubicon. And the rest, as they say, is history. Millennia before Julius Caesar's time, another man stood facing his own Rubicon. Rather than standing at the banks of a river, he stood before a beautiful woman with a piece of fruit in her hand. She had been created in perfection to be a ezer, a helper for him, corresponding to him. His choice as he, as he stood before his Rubicon was clear as well. Take the fruit and rebel against God or obey God and in a sense rebel against his wife. And just like Caesar, without another thought, he took the fruit and the rest is, as they say, history.
While the ramifications of Caesar's decision were far-reaching, the ramifications of Adam's decisions were staggering. Staggering beyond all imagination. All of humanity was stained by Adam's sin. In all, Adam died, Paul would later write. Adam's sin is recorded in chapter 3 of Genesis. And in chapters 4 and 5, we find things getting worse, not better. This idea that the world is continuing to get better and better and better, and then someday we'll reach nirvana or perfection or utopia, and then Christ is going to come again, doesn't seem to work out that way. Modern-day theologians call that idea post-millennialism, meaning that if things keep getting better, if we can usher in a new world order where there's a chicken in every pot in a car in every garage, then somehow Christ is going to come again. Well, I guess through the, the age of the Enlightenment, they thought things might be getting better and better. With the Industrial Revolution, our lives became easier and easier. But then came along that little troubling episode called World War I. And it didn't seem like things were getting better at all. Most adherents to post-millennialism jumped ship after World War I. Those who stayed aboard, though, had another troubling episode from the late 30s to 1945 called World War II. And there really weren't many adherents to that kind of philosophy left after that. Well, there are a few popping up again today. And I wonder what's going to happen to show people again it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And we saw that from the very beginning in chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis. We don't th- see things getting better. They're getting worse. Oh, there are bright spots like Enoch who walked with God. We talked about him a few weeks ago. But they're rare. There are very few and far between. And then we come to chapter 6 of Genesis, where we find ourselves this morning. And things rise to an evil crescendo. Because you see, the Lord, the Lord's not going to allow either individuals or a culture to continue on in a state of wickedness or debauchery for an unlimited period of time. God will judge evil behavior, and we see that in Genesis 6. God was sorry that he had made man. He was determined to wipe man from the face of the earth like one would wipe a dish that had been washed. We come to Noah now in this chapter. And Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. So Noah and his family, and his family alone, would escape the coming judgment because of the grace of God. And because, as the text tells us, he was a righteous man, blameless In his time. This doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. Let's get that off the table right up front. No one is sinless. No one other than our Lord Jesus Christ has ever walked this earth in sinless perfection. But Noah lived consistently in fellowship with his creator. That's what it means by he was blameless in the sight of God. And those who are the recipients of grace, and doesn't that include us all, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. The world he loved, we're all recipients of God's grace. So those who are recipients of the grace of God should walk in fellowship with the one who extends that grace. Now Genesis chapter 6 reveals that individuals, all individuals, make a choice in this life. You can't run from it. I know people try to postpone choices like this, but you can't run from it. We either choose 
to walk in fellowship with God, or we choose to live apart from fellowship with Him. And all of us have to make that decision. And guess what? By not making that decision, you're choosing not to walk in fellowship with Him. All of us, all of us cross this Rubicon of our own. We all are faced with that decision, both the initial decision to trust Jesus Christ, to forgive our sins, and to grant us eternal life. All of us have stood at that Rubicon, have we not? And the decisions, the decision that we made that day will have not just far-reaching implications and ramifications, it'll have eternal ramifications. All of us have crossed that Rubicon, but we, ha- we have another Rubicon that we cross every morning we wake up. And that is, am I going to live today for Jesus Christ, or am I going to live it for myself? Those are really the only two choices. You say, well, I'm going to live it for someone else, but that's really living it for yourself, because you're choosing yourself and your own desires above Christ's desires. We all have these Rubicons that we cross all the time. We can't just sit it out. You sit it out, you're making a choice. And we must not forget that there will be ramifications to the crossing of our Rubicon. Now, when Caesar crossed his Rubicon, he took his army straight to Rome. The Roman Senate, being the cowards that they were, fled immediately. They ran. Caesar hunted them down. That was the part of the civil war that ensued. But you know how many casualties Caesar took on the way to Rome? Zero. He did not harm one Roman citizen on the way. His fight wasn't with the Senate. It wasn't with the citizens, it was with the Senate. That's why Caesar was beloved in his few short years as the leader of Rome. Now, he made some mistakes, of course. He was not a Christian, that's clear. But he was a wise leader for Rome. And the first wise decision he made was to take no casualties. Never to hurt a Roman citizen in that way. Only the Senate. That was the only, that was the only group that he was after. But his, his crossing the Rubicon changed the world. Literally. Rome ruled the world. At that time, at least the civilized world. It changed everything. And when you made that decision to cross your Rubicon and trust Jesus Christ and Him alone, apart from any works that you might could do, for by grace we've been saved through faith, it's a gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works. Not a result of works, lest any man should boast. When you crossed your own Rubicon and said, yes, Father, I trust Jesus to forgive my sins, the results were staggering. They were just as staggering as Adam's bad decision to take the fruit from the hand of that beautiful woman called his wife, Eve. But they were staggering in a good way. And now that you've done that, you will spend eternity with him in a place of no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. That result was the single most important decision you will ever make in your life. But after that decision, there come others. And we have to make those decisions, probably not just daily, but moment by moment. Are we going to live for him? Or are we going to live apart from him? Open your Bibles just for a moment, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 6. And you might, as you're doing that, place your finger in Psalm chapter 1. If you were there for the scripture reading, it won't take you long to get there. Psalm chapter 1, because that's where we're going in just a few moments, in just a few short moments. In Genesis 6, verse 9, the text tells us these are the records of the generations of Noah. This is one of those Toledot sections of the book of Genesis. Around, Genesis is, is, revolves around these sections. These are the generations of. And this is the story of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. 
blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Now, the other person that we've seen that did this was Enoch. You remember? He's, he's set apart in Genesis chapter 5. And now we have another one. We have another one named Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Now, that's something new. We haven't learned that before. We knew it was corrupt. We knew it was evil. We knew that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they took whomever they chose to be their wives. But we didn't know, at least not until now, it was implied that now it comes, the text comes right out and says that the earth was filled with violence. Because that's what happens when wickedness is unrestrained. You never see that. When love is unrestrained, what do you see? You don't see violence, do you? No, it's when wickedness and evil is unrestrained. Oh, we have a violent culture that we live in today. I mean, the, the statistics there are staggering as well. There, there's some parts of even Houston you wouldn't want to walk down the street. I was in Johannesburg, South Africa in August of 2006. I have taken a long flight. I flew from Houston to Frankfurt, Germany, from Frankfurt, Germany to Johannesburg, South Africa. And then I was going to take a short puddle jumper from Johannesburg, South Africa, over to Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Well, that night, I got in very, very late. I had had a reservation at a hotel that was near the airport. I was so exhausted from the flight. It was almost 20 hours worth of flying to get down there with a very short uh, layover. So when I got to the, to the curb with my bag, I could see the hotel in the distance down, down the way, down this uh, fairly dark street. And, and I didn't want to wait for a cab. I wanted to get to that room and go to sleep, take a shower and go to sleep. If any of you have been on those long flights, you know exactly what that's like. So I took my bag and I started walking down the street. It was fairly dark. I realized it was kind of deserted. I knew there were some people that were looking at me. I didn't think anything of it because I was tired. Had I not been tired, maybe I would have been a little more wise. I get to the hotel, and the doorman says, uh, how did you get here? I said, I walked from the airport over here. He said, oh, sir, don't ever do that again. People get killed walking down that street. That seemed like a, a fairly quiet, benign street in the middle of a very modern city. But you have, to, you have to fear for your life to walk from the airport to the hotel? Maybe our land is filled with violence as well. Not just the United States, but countries all over the world. Filled with violence. Lagos, Nigeria, one of the most violent cities in the world. I've been there too. It's amazing to me what evil will do to a culture. And I'm not talking about this, these particular nations. I'm talking about us as a culture. And Houston's no different. The earth was filled with violence. Verse 11, that's the problem. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now, that all is all except for Noah, and presumably his, his family as well, but Noah for sure. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth was filled with, is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth, make an ark for yourself of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make its length. The ark of 300 cubits of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Most of you have seen models of the ark, but this is a long boat. This is a boat, boat that's a football field and a half long, basically. So it's quite a long ship. It's actually approximately half the size of the Queen Mary, the modern day Queen Mary. You shall make, in verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark and finish it into a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark on the side of it. 
you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So three decks for Noah and the animals, Noah's family. And 17, and behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. Notice that, to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life. This seems to argue against a local flood, but we'll, we'll talk about that more in times, in times future. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Everything that's on the earth shall perish. In verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you. He's speaking to Noah now. And you shall enter the ark, and you and your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and after animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you. What's that? Shall come to you to keep them alive. Some people say, how could he have lassoed a dinosaur? Well, God's good. this is a supernatural event. The whole thing is a supernatural event. We believed him in chapter 1 that he created the heavens and the earth. Why wouldn't we believe that after he's created these animals, he couldn't bring them two by two to Noah? It's not a stumbling block. At least for me, it's not. Of all the birds after their kind, of all the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you and to keep them alive. Now, just in case you're, you're in town visiting with us this morning, you're fixing to go back to your home city this afternoon, I wish you well. I pray that God would put a hedge of protection around you as you travel. But just in case you don't get to hear the future lessons, this ark is plenty big enough to hold two of each kind. The text is not going to say that, he, that Noah, when he, when he brings these animals onto the ark, takes two Dobermans and two German shepherds and two poodles and two beagles. And, and that's not what it said. He would have just brought two dogs that had the genetic potential that all dogs would have. And after that, they could, they could uh, adapt within their, within their kind of dogs. He's going to take two horses. He's not going to take two of every different, different uh, subspecies of horse. I hope you see the point. He would take probably two dinosaurs. People wonder, what, where were the dinosaurs? There was a couple on the ark. That's not so hard to believe. There were a couple dinosaurs on the ark. I believe they died off after the, the atmospheric conditions. Probably the foliage changed after the flood. So just in case you're here this morning and, and you, you won't be able to hear the remaining lessons... This is not a far-fetched story. It's, it's a story that is the Word of God. This is not myth. This is not legend. It's history. It's miraculous to be sure, but it's history. In verse 21, take, as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible. I like that. That means that there's some foods not edible. Whatever that means, to gather it. <laughs> to gather it to yourself. And it shall be for food for you and for them. I can't say that without telling my, my goat's head story, my sheep's head story. I, in August of 2000, year 2000, I was in Kazakhstan, great with Jim Myers. And I was teaching soteriology to a group of pastors from, I think, five different Shtan countries. Uh, Afghanistan wasn't represented, but most all the rest were. Jim had warned me ahead of time, said, you're the honored guest this week. And as this week comes to a conclusion, you will be at the home of our hostess, and I've got to tell you, she's going to serve you a sheep's head. That's what the, that's what the honored guest gets. And so I, I am one of, I, I'm at least in the top five of the pickiest eaters in Houston. <laughs> I think uh, some other members of my family are right there with me, but I'm at least in the top five. So a sheep's head didn't seem too appetizing to me. 
Also, I was told that the eyeballs were the delicacy and probably should be consumed first. And so I'm just about ready. I'm, my stomach is queasy all week long. And I'm trying to think maybe I'll, maybe I'll fall down and break something before I have to go. Because I was thinking of this passage here about the edible food. Now, I've got to tell you, our, my hostess was a delightful, delightful woman. And she was also one of our interpreters that week. Her husband was the pastor of the church. And I did not for a minute want to insult her. Not for a minute. But I prayed like I've prayed about a few things in my life that week. How I might could get out of eating those eyeballs. <laughs> we sat down and it was funny because Jim Myers has got, Jim is kind of dry, but he also has a bit of a sense of humor too. And he was sitting to my right. Phyllis was over there with him and and uh, he kind of looked at me when she pulled that sheep's head out of the boiling pot and set it out there and placed it right in front of me. And Jim kind of had this smirk on his face. Now, what are you going to do? And so I, um, everybody was just watching me very closely. And so I took a little, I took a knife and I, I took a little bit of the meaty portion off the back of the neck and, and consumed it. And uh, I saw our hostess looking at me just intently to see how I would like it. And I, and I said, you know, it is such an honor for me to, you to have me at your home would you do me an honor and, and consume the eyeballs? Said, you really want me to? I said, yes, I would love that. It would be a great honor to me if you would do that. And she did, and I couldn't look, but she did. And Then, the, then I, she passed it back to me. I said, no, please, everyone at the table, partake of this with me. Share, share in this honor with me. And it never came back around to me. It was consumed before. It so I can't, I can't think of the edible thing without uh, recalling that to mind. Take for yourself some of all food which is edible. Get, gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Now, this is not just for the family. This is food for the animals as well. They're going to be on the ark a long time, longer than 40 days. We'll see that. Um, actually, we'll see it after I get back from Ukraine. Verse 22, thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, I'd like for you to, to turn with me for the rest of today's lesson over to Psalm 1. And you may wonder, why in the world are we going to Psalms from the book of Genesis? This is a psalm where the righteous and the wicked are contrasted. Psalm, home, psalm chapter 1 drives home the point that Moses is making through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 6. Now one thing before we get into this text itself, just about the Psalms in general, because we need to remember what kind of literature we're reading at a particular time. Psalms, of course, are poetry. But the Psalms are a bit different from other kinds of literature, certainly different from Genesis. The Psalms, in the Psalms, you'll see these terms not just in Psalm 1, but all through the Psalms, you'll see the term the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. And they're frequently contrasted, as they will be here. Not just the righteous and the wicked, but their ends, will be, their futures will be contrasted here as well. Just like the righteous and the wicked are contrasted in Genesis chapter 6. The wicked in the Psalms, not just in Psalm 1, but the wicked in the Psalms are representative of those who rebel against God. And the righteous are representative of those who choose to walk in fellowship with God. Now, once we get to some more in-depth theological material in the Word of God. We, we find out that, technically speaking, the righteous are those who have exercised faith in Christ and God's own righteousness has been imputed to them. They've been justified before God. The wicked are those who have not. 
But there's also other uses of those terms. You can have believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that are acting wickedly. Or I guess it's, it's possible that you can have people who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that are acting righteously, but not so in the Psalms. The Psalms are simpler than that. So don't try to read New Testament. Don't try, try to read Ephesians back into the reading of the Psalms. Just take the Psalms for what they are. The wicked and the righteous are contrasted. And generally speaking, in the Psalms, the wicked are those who are unbelievers, those who have rebelled against God. The righteous are those who have trusted Christ. And in the Psalms, it's just assumed that you'll act consistently with who you are. If you're in Christ, if you're righteous, you're going to act righteously. If you're wicked, you're going to act wickedly. Okay, everybody, we're all on the same page there. So don't try to read Ephesians back into Psalms. You would, you would be making a mistake. This was our scripture reading for this morning. The, the, the Psalms don't really speak, again, so much of one who is positionally righteous, but experientially righteous as well. Now, in verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You may recall that God's blessing is a major subject of the book of Genesis. The term there is barak. Uh, here, here, uh, here the psalmist uses a slightly different term. The term here is esher. And this term means to be blessed. It means to be happy. It means to be contented. This is similar to what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Esher. It even means to have good fortune. So maybe perhaps your Bible, some of your Bibles in the newer translations may even translate it that way, to have good fortune. All of those work in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, but perhaps in context, this word Esher should be probably be best translated to be contented. Contented, maybe even happy would be fine, but I like, the, I like the translation contented. How blessed or how contented is the man who does not, and then there's going to be three things listed, all in a parallel structure. Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's something of a progression that's going on here. First, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, this indicates one who takes the path of rebellion against God. That's what the wicked do. They rebel against God. Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? Then who does not stand in the path of sinners? And by the way, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers are also in a parallel structure with each other here in somewhat of a progression too. But I'm, my, my main focus is going to be the three words, walk, sit, and stand. The walking is taking the path of rebellion, standing, really implies one is standing firm in the path of rebellion. They won't be knocked off of it. This is a person who is convicted that they should be in this particular path, either, either by completely subduing the conscience or, or, um, or in some way acting like it doesn't exist. In other words, for these people, rebellion has become a way of life. You know, it can, it can be that way, can it? At first we decide we're just going to take this path for just a little while can't be much, too much harm in taking that particular path, can it? Oh, it looks like such a beautiful path. And then the Holy Spirit's telling you, don't do that. You're going to get yourself in trouble. You're not going to be blessed if you go that way. That's not, the, that's not the way of the Scriptures. But then we all do it from time to time. We all veer off the right path and onto the wrong one. Now, if we're wise, we recognize that fairly quickly. We confess of that. We repent and we get back on the right track. But the longer we stay on that bad track, 
the more likely it's going to be difficult for us to get off of it. Something's going to have to come into our life to shake us off that track. And God's gracious and he'll do it. So I call it taking off his divine belt and spanking us back onto the right track. Sometimes we don't even get it then. And not only do we walk in the counsel of the wicked, not only do we stand firm in the path of sinners, making it our lifestyle, but then we sit in the seat of scoffers. Those of you that are familiar with the ancient Near East, particularly Israel, those ancient cities had, had usually very important gates, massive gates that would guard the outside of the city, especially if it was a walled city. And that's where people would gather. Now, they weren't just like my gate on my fence at the house, you know, maybe about a couple of inches thick. These were big, massive gates. And people would sit in the gates, sit in the shade there, and they would see people coming to and from the city. The cities were much smaller than they are today. And they would converse there. Justice was rendered there. I'm sure the gossip was exchanged there. And that was their Starbucks. That's where they met, was at the city gates. And so... In this, in this passage, this person who has gone through this progression is not just on the wrong path, is not just firmly committed to that path, but they're actually sitting, conversing, plotting with the evil ones now, in the seat of scoffers. These, this is where men are gathered to discuss the issues of the day, but now we find that this person is not just on the wrong path, not just committed to the wrong path, but is actually plotting evil while on the wrong path. Now, there's a contrast. Thank the Lord. There's a contrast to this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he's talking about the man who does not do these things. You see that from verse 1? Contented, happy, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, who doesn't walk, stand, and sit with the wicked. But his delight, his happiness, his contentment, his joy is in the law of the Lord. This could be translated, rather, his pleasure lies in the Lord's instruction. It's the word Torah. Today the Jews call the first five books of the Bible the Torah, the law. But it also can mean instruction. So here his pleasure, the one who has not done these other things, in contrast, his pleasure lies in the Lord's instruction. The text goes on to say, and in his law he meditates upon it day and night. Or... To put it another way, he meditates upon it continually. It's always in his mind. Now, this doesn't mean if you're an engineer designing a bridge that you should be considering Genesis chapter 6 while you're doing those drawings. That's not what this says. If you did that, you would not be doing what Psalm 1 and Genesis 6 are, are, are speaking about at all. You wouldn't be walking with God you need to be focusing in upon what it is you're doing and doing it for the Lord. Whatever it is you're doing, you do it for the Lord. That's how this would be applied in that situation. But constantly, any time a decision comes up, what the Lord would desire should be the forefront of our minds. Should we, should we speak a kind word to that person? Or should we tell them that that dress makes her look fat? I was at Golden Corral on Friday after Thanksgiving. My boys went through the line, and the lady says, okay, that'd be two regulars and one seniors, right? I said, no, it's three regulars. And she said, no. No. I said, no, really, it's three regulars. I looked at the age, I won't tell you what it was, but I I said, I don't qualify for that. No, really? 
The guy, that was uncalled for. No, but we say things a lot worse than that a lot of times, don't we? Because we're not walk, we're not focusing, we're not concentrating, we're not meditating day and night upon the Lord's instruction. Now, if you're going to meditate day and night on the Lord's instruction, what prerequisite might you find for that? To know the Lord's instruction. Exactly. You've got to know it before you can meditate upon it. Or his, or his teaching. But this person who, who is going to be blessed, who is going to be contented, and that's what we all want, isn't it? You don't have to say, no, I don't want to be happy. I don't want to be happy. I don't want happiness. Yeah, you do, you big fat liar. Your pants are on fire. You want happiness just as much as I do. You want to be contented just as much as I do. And guess what? Guess who else wants you to be contented and happy? Take a wild guess. Your creator, he wants you to be happy too. But he wants you to be happy the right way. Now, there's somebody else that's going to counterfeit happiness and that's going to counterfeit contentment. And that's the enemy. That's Satan. He's going to pretend like he wants you to be happy, but he doesn't. Misery loves company. He wants you to join him in his misery. But he's going to pretend that if you go my way, you're going to be contented. God says, no, there is a way that you can go, and it's not Satan's way. Now, this person will be contented now watch what happens in verse 3. He's also going to be prosperous. We might need to rethink our definition of prosperity in just a moment, but he's going to be prosperous. You've heard this before. Oftentimes you see this in posters in Christian bookstores, don't you? I've seen them that way. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Did you hear that last part? And whatever he does, he prospers. This imagery is... It's so refreshing to me. I love Google Earth. You ever get on that sometimes, just play around, go to different places you used to live or, or different places you want to go and kind of see the lay of the land. It's just probably waste a little bit too much time on Google Earth from, from time to time. But it wasn't too long, long ago. I was in, in our living room with, with my son David, and, and I was going to show him Casper, Wyoming on Google Earth. And I, I could tell he was just fascinated by that. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was going to show him anyway. And so we got to that aerial view of Casper, Wyoming, and I zoomed down like you can. I almost got to the house, the house view, then I zoomed back, and I said, hey, listen, that's Garden Creek that runs right through there. And he said, how can you tell that's Garden Creek? Because you can't zoom into the to closest of, of the water. I mean, that Garden Creek is no wider than this platform here. I said, the way you can tell where Garden Creek is is just follow the trees, because Casper's fairly barren outside of the city itself. There's no trees out there. And so you, what you see is this line of trees just weaving through, the prairie. You can also see where the Platte River is as well, because you got this prairie in Wyoming, and from the sky you see the trees. That's what you see, and so you know that's the river right there, because the only way trees are going to survive is if they're in someone's yard and they get watered from time to time, or if they're near a river, at least in that part of Wyoming. So this imagery is very refreshing to me. It reminds me of that, and, and what it tells you'll be just like a tree that's planted by the water. You won't be like a tree that's trying to grow out in the desert. The wrong path is the desert, the psalmist is saying. If you do it God's way, you're going to be continually refreshed. And not only that, you're going to bear fruit if you do it God's way. And your leaves are not going to wither. Now, my, my name, Baumgartner, is actually from a German name, Baumgartner, which means tree farmer. I wish I knew more about trees. I like to know more about trees, but I've noticed this in my fruit trees. When the leaves start to wither then the fruit doesn't seem to do too well either. Apparently there needs to be water and nourishment for both of those things. At least that's my wild guess. Seems that way. Seems to have worked out that way. 
Well, it's the same way here in the ancient world. It was desert there. The best place you could be is by a stream. And that's going to be the one who meditates upon God's word day and night. Now, the word meditate also can mean here to speak, haga. It can mean to speak. So it's not just that one is thinking about it all the time, but, but to speak indicates you're doing something with it. Now, it actually, in, in, in terms of its application, it would mean more than just even speaking. It would mean acting, get this, isn't this a novel idea, acting consistently with what you know. Isn't that a wonderful idea? Well, it's all the way back here in the Psalms. And that person will prosper. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I generally talk about what's foremost on my mind. You're probably the same way, too. You know, if, if it's Super Bowl week, we're all talking about the Super Bowl, at least a lot of us. If it's... If it's Thanksgiving week, we're talking about food and turkey. If we've got nothing else to talk about, we talk about the weather, don't we? There's always something. So we talk about, we meditate upon, we act upon that which is most important to us at the moment, that's foremost on our minds. If the Word of God is foremost on our minds, you're not going to have to wring your hands saying, how can I apply this today? It's going to come naturally. If you're being fed by the water of the Word, it's going to come naturally. The Spirit's going to move you to do the right thing. In fact, when you start trying to do the wrong things, you'll see, that's, that's not where I want to go. It'll seem so weird to you. It'll feel wrong. Here's the contrast. Instead of sitting in the city gates, plotting evil, the one who meditates upon the teachings of the word will speak and act upon that which he is learning. It just makes sense. When one immerses himself in the word of God, that's going to naturally be what we talk about. It doesn't mean other subjects are not going to be approached. Don't take that from this message. You'll become a bore. It's okay to, if somebody talks about the weather to answer them. You don't have to say, well, I have no concern for the weather at all. My concern is on the Word of God. <laughs> no, it's not. Because if it was, you wouldn't have said something so boorish. You realize that? You wouldn't have done it. The one who consistently meditates upon the Word of God will prosper. He will be successful. And that success will be measured alongside, get this, please, the teaching of the Word of God. That's how success will be measured. Not the standard of success for the world. The world may say you're not successful until, and then you fill in the blank, until you've, you've re reached this status in your work, until you have this much money in the bank, until you've had this kind of house, until you've been to this exotic vacation location. The world may say that. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers of verse 1 may say that, but not the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, you've heard this verse before. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then the text tells us, men of whom the world was not worthy. You know, Hebrews 11 is talking about some of the most successful people that have ever walked this planet. Probably not going to find that in the success aisle in the bookstore, are you? Men of whom the world is not worthy. I'm not trying to encourage you to, to live such a life that you're going to be sawn to. That's not for everybody. Very few people have to endure that for our Lord. But we need to adjust our standards for success to God's standards for success. 
Now briefly, in verses 4 through 6, here the focus lies not in the life of the faithless, but in the fate of the faithless. The text begins in the New American Standard, the wicked are not so. Actually, it could be, probably for emphasis, should be understood, not so, the wicked. You see, there's this spiritual prosperity, and now, not so, the wicked. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is about not so much the life of the faithless, but the fate of the faithless. The Lord will not allow either individuals or a culture to continue on in a state of wickedness and debauchery for an unlimited period of time. God will judge the situation. He will judge the evil behavior. That's what's happening. It's going to happen in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. Not so, the text says. Not so. Not so, the wicked. The commencement of judgment will be abrupt. Just like the announcement of it here. It comes very abruptly in this passage. We're talking about prosperity and trees by water and all that. Not so. Not so for those that we're talking about in verse 1. Those who, who, who walk, who stand, who sit with evil ones. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. When grain's been harvested and threshed, an ancient farmer would gather it up into a heap, and then he would take something akin to a pitchfork, and he'd throw it up in the air, and the breeze would blow away the chaff, the parts you didn't need, and the good stuff was going was to settle back down. They'd have to do it quite a, quite a few times, I understand. But the chaff was so light, it couldn't stand up to any kind of pitchfork judgment. Well, in the same way, the faithless will be could I use the word, blown away in the judgment. They won't be able to stand firm in the judgment. When God opens his mouth, they will be blown away. Remember I told you before, all of us stand before our own Rubicon all the time. If you've come here this morning and, you have, and you're standing before that Rubicon of salvation right now to decide whether I want to trust Jesus Christ or not trust him, let me tell you what, this decision that you make, is going to have eternal ramifications. And if you choose against him, you won't be able to stand. You will be blown away, and I don't want that for you. And guess what? God doesn't want it for you. He spent everything he had. He gave everything he had to provide salvation for you, the potential for salvation for you. He doesn't want you to fail. He wants your success. He wants you to choose for Jesus Christ. In verse 6, as we close, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This word also could be understood as perceives or maybe acknowledges the way of the righteous. He acknowledges it. He knows us. He sees everything. God is omniscient. He's also omnipresent. There's nowhere you can go to hide from God, and that's a good thing. There's no good deed that you've ever done that God has forgotten about. You realize that? He washes away the bad stuff, and he keeps a record of that good stuff. Every single... You've forgotten about probably 80... You've probably forgotten 80, 90, maybe 95% of the good things you've done in your life. I hope you have, because I hope you do one, and then move on to the next one. God hadn't forgotten about it. He acknowledges it. He perceives it. He knows it. The Lord knows. And the Lord is the one who, in the end, will evaluate our lives and judge them as either a success or a failure. Not the Word. Not, not the world, rather. Not the world. The Lord will evaluate it. 
I hope that you've come this morning, you've already crossed that initial Rubicon of initial faith in Jesus Christ. But for the rest of us who have done that, for, the, for those of us who have done that, we wake up every morning standing before our own little stream, our own Rubicon. And we all have decisions to make. Now that we've made that big one, we all have decisions to make that have ramifications that do reverberate throughout the quarters of time. Those decisions will be felt for eternity. So on this November morning in the year of our Lord, 2009, as you stand before your own Rubicon, I can't cross it for you. You're going to have to cross it yourself. But if the Lord gives you another day, you've got another decision to make. Am I going to use that day to serve the Lord? Am I going to use that day to stand or to walk, to sit, to stand with the scoffers and the sinners? The Lord wants your success, and I do too. And I pray that that's what you'll find this Christmas season. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the sacrifice that you blessed us with, with his son, your son dying on the cross for us. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry in our lives that enables us to make decisions that are right and that will prosper us in your eyes. We want to please you. Help us through your indwelling Holy Spirit to do just that. And if there's anyone here this morning, Father, who has not made the greatest of all decisions, I do pray the Holy Spirit would work on their souls even now so that they would know that you love them so deeply and that you've provided for their salvation. They just need to exercise simple faith faith alone in your, in your son, Jesus Christ. And their sins will be forgiven, and they'll receive eternal life. We pray that for them this morning, and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.